0: Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps could give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com Slash Marine History for a free audiobook and a free 30 day trial. Now, on to the show. Welcome to episode 102 of History of the Marine Corps Attack in the Pacific. After Japanese forces attacked Pearl Harbor, smaller campaigns were launched against other U.S. installations in the Pacific. This episode digs into the attacks on Midway and Wake. Thanks for joining. Now, let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The attack on Pearl Harbor was the first part of a much larger campaign that extended across the Pacific. As the main Japanese strike force headed towards Pearl Harbor, a separate unit, consisting of two destroyers, the Akibono and Ushio, and a tanker, the Shiraya, left Tokyo Bay and headed towards Midway. This group was known as the Midway Neutralization Unit, and their name pretty much sums up their purpose. They had orders to attack the airbase on the night of December 7th as soon as the Japanese carrier force left Pearl Harbor. A little over an hour after the initial attack on Oahu, Navy radio operators at Midway received the news. Admiral Claude Block confirmed the report and he immediately ordered war plans to be in effect. Midway was an important location for the United States Navy. In 1938, Arthur Hepburn released the Hepburn Board Report which was the foundation for the massive shore establishment expansion before World War II. The board concluded, quote, From a strategic point of view, an air base at Midway is second in importance only to Pearl Harbor. Unquote. The committee recommended $13 million for the rapid development of the island. The command would serve as a naval, air, and submarine base for two patrol plane squadrons, two divisions of submarines, and other facilities for maritime vessels. Midway was defended by a mix of marine-based defense artillery and aviation. Due to Bach's quick reaction of the news of Pearl Harbor, the defenses were available sooner than other Central Pacific bases. Midway has long been recognized as strategic for the United States. In 1867, The Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, directed that it be claimed and surveyed by the United States. At the time, it was known as Brooks Island. Two years later, Congress appropriated $50,000 for dredging a channel. A lot of work went into the island, including help from one of the largest international airlines of the time, Pan American Airways. The Commercial Pacific Cable Company was established on Sand Island, and a seaplane base was constructed as well. They also planted wiregrass to help bind the sand, which made it possible to plant ironwood trees and eucalyptus. On December 20, 1939, Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, directed the commandant to garrison a marine detachment on Midway. The 3rd Defense Battalion, commanded by Lt. Col. Robert H. Pepper, arrived at Midway the following year to scope out the island and plan for the defenses. Included in the review was an assessment from the medical officer. I'll share something funny about the report. Native to the island were albatrosses, one of the largest flying birds with a wingspan of about 12 feet. The Marines called them goonie birds, and apparently they got a kick out of them. In a report by the 3rd Defense Battalion Medical Officer, Lieutenant Commander Julian Love, he suggested that we should protect these birds because the Marines really enjoyed having them there. He said, quote, Certain considerations should be made or continued for the preservation of these birds, for they are a great source of amusement and the cheerful calls add much to the attractiveness of the island, and will in a latent way add to the morale of personnel. Unquote. When the provisional detachment of Marines arrived, it consisted of 177 men. They brought two 5-inch guns with them. Marines spent the next six months building defenses and digging shelters by hand. Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Charlesworth relayed the progress in a message to the Commandant. He complained a lot in his letter, but I probably would have too if I spent months constructing defenses and digging out positions by hand. In his message, he mentions the albatrosses, quote, The Goonie birds were a considerable problem within the position areas because once they fell into a gun pit, they did not have the intelligence necessary to find their way out. Actually, the birds created quite a diversion for the men working on the guns. And if paint were hereditary, I imagine that many a Goonie bird is still wearing the red lead splotches so delicately given his ancestors by the midway detachment. Recreation generally consisted of swimming, limited boating and fishing, a small amount of beer, on occasion, and a somewhat haphazard outdoor movie which came into being late in the tour. The birds seemed to enjoy the movie as much as the men." On November 19, 1941, a Marine Aviation Advance Detail arrived and consisted of Second Lieutenant Lauren Everton and 60 enlisted. On December 7th, patrol planes at Midway conducted their routine searches early in the morning. At 0630, 9 o'clock Hawaii time, a Navy radio operator received the news about Pearl Harbor. A few minutes later, The Army Signal Corps also received the information. An official dispatch from the Commandant, 14th Naval District, confirmed the news and ordered that current war plans be in effect. The aircraft that were conducting routine patrols were recalled, and new sectors were established. The 6th Defense Battalion was also ordered to go to general quarters, but they had anticipated the command and were already in position. U.S. troops spent the rest of the day preparing for a potential attack, but no planes patrolling the water spotted Japanese activity. Just as the sun was setting, a marine lookout saw a light flashing to the southwest of Sand Island. The light disappeared, but he had no doubt that it was the visual communication of Japanese ships. Three hours later, radar on Sand Island detected surface targets in the same direction as the flashing lights, And soon after that, spotters noticed silhouettes in that area as well. Marine First Lieutenant Alfred L. Booth, the commanding officer for the searchlight battery, immediately requested authorization to illuminate the potential enemy vessels. But his request was denied, since illumination would disclose the Marine's position prematurely. At 9.35 p.m., the two Japanese destroyers launched their first salvo at Midway. The first shots landed short and hit between Sand Island's west beach and the reef. As the destroyers moved towards the island, they fired another volley. The shells hit near Alpha Battery, the 5-inch seacoast unit at the south end of Sand Island. There was a power plant that was used as a command post. One of the shells during this attack penetrated an air vent in the reinforced power plant and wounded 1st Lieutenant George Cannon and three enlisted. Cannon suffered a crushed pelvis and was bleeding profusely, but declined help until other U.S. troops were evacuated. His communication chief, Corporal Harold Hazelwood, sustained a broken leg from the attack, but he stayed until he finished fixing the damaged switchboard. Cannon stayed by his side until communication was working. He was eventually forced out of the power plant for help. He died a few minutes after reaching the aid station. Cannon was awarded the Medal of Honor for his sacrifice, making him the first Marine in World War II to receive this award. Hazelwood later received the Navy Cross for re-establishing communication. Thirteen minutes after the start of the battle, enemy targets were within range of the Marines' weapons. Japan continued to launch shells at the island, and they hit the roof of the seaplane hangar, which instantly burst into flames. This became a beacon for the enemy destroyers, and they soon shifted fire to other nearby buildings. Five minutes later, the searchlights were given permission to illuminate the ships. Spotlights lit up the enemy, and the destroyers quickly changed targets and focused on the lights. Concussion blasts from the shells knocked the light out of position, but a Marine immediately readjusted it under fire and got it back into action. The island's battery units commenced firing at the Japanese vessels, and they launched everything they had. Everything from 5-inch shells to 50 caliber anti-aircraft machine guns sprayed enemy ships. Five minutes after the searchlights lit up the destroyers, smoke started to pour from the Ushio. The Japanese stopped firing and both ships fled to the southwest. Delta Battery fired 13 rounds of 3-inch, and Midway observers recall that the 3-inch shells scored at least 3 hits. Bravo Battery fired an additional 9 rounds of 5-inch. Around the time of the Japanese retreat, a Pan-American aircraft, the Philippine Clipper, piloted by Captain Hamilton, was flying from Wake Island to Midway. He reported seeing an intense fire on the sea surface, indicating that the ship was indeed hit. All U.S. troops focused on damage control, and they prepared for another attack. Fires were extinguished, defensive positions were repaired and resupplied, and casualties were cared for. Patrol planes were also sent to locate and attack the enemy ships, but they never found their target. The 6th Defense Battalion had 2 killed and 10 wounded. Reinforcements arrived 10 days after the attack. Major Clarence Chappell traveled 1,137 miles from Hickman Field. This was the longest single-engine landplane mass flight of record and was conducted without surface rescue crafts. When they arrived, 1st Lieutenant David Silvey reported, quote, the men stood on top of their gun emplacement and cheered when the planes droned overhead. They represented a real Christmas present, unquote. A little over 1,000 miles southwest of Midway lies Wake Island. The Hepburn Report also identified Wake as an important location for U.S. Naval Forces. They recommended $7.5 million for a three-year base development program mainly for long-range patrol plane reconnaissance, and to serve as an intermediate station on the air route to the Far East. They concluded, quote, The immediate continuous operation of patrol planes from Wake would be vital at the outbreak of war in the Pacific, unquote. Work started in early 1941, and in response to the growing tensions with Japan, Admiral Kimmel emphasized the importance of completing the job as fast as possible. Kimmel wasn't the only one who had the foresight on the importance of wake. As early as 1938, the Japanese concept of strategy in the Central Pacific was to seize or neutralize the advanced U.S. bases west of Hawaii. Vice Admiral Inoue Nariyoshi commanded the Japanese 4th Fleet. The setup of his squadron is similar to the Fleet Marine Force and was organized to provide naval and amphibious units to combat. In November 1941, Nariyoshi's mission was clear quote, Defend the South Seas Islands, patrol, maintain surface communication, capture Wake. Unquote. Both the United States and Japan prepared their strategy for the island in the months leading up to Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. On June 23rd, the 1st Defense Battalion was established and identified four 3-inch anti-aircraft batteries, three 5-inch Seacoast batteries, an appropriate number of automatic weapons, one fire control radar, and one search radar, be stood up. By August, Major Lewis Hone, five other officers, 173 enlisted marines, and a few sailors arrived on the island. And by the 22nd, a base camp was established. 1,200 civilians were sent to construct the new base. The crew quickly got to work building roads, shops, utilities, living quarters, and airbase facilities. However, military defenses were not prioritized. Marines built the fortifications and their living facility themselves. They used picks and shovels for most of the work. They managed to acquire a civilian bulldozer to help. Two days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, the defenses at Wake Island were less than ideal. They needed 43 officers and 939 enlisted to effectively man the weapons. The 1st Defense Battalion's strength on the island was less than a third of that, and they had 388 Marines, 15 of whom were officers. Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 211 had 12 officers and 49 enlisted. The 3-inch battery had no one to man the guns, and the other two batteries only had three of their four guns manned. Radar also never made it to the island. On December 6th, Major Devereaux held a general drill, where all Marines manned their gun positions, tested communication, and simulated targets were engaged. The exercise went very well, and in return for an outstanding performance, Devereaux gave the Marines the rest of the day off, and he also allowed a holiday schedule the following day. Marines worked seven days a week since they arrived on the island and his reward for a much-needed break couldn't have come at a better time. The morning after their time off, they received communication that Pearl Harbor was under enemy attack. Devereaux immediately orders a call to arms, gathers his officers, and informs them of Pearl Harbor. He warns that they could expect the same thing in a very short time. Marine Gunner, Harold Borth, and Sergeant James Hall climbed the water tower to compensate for the lack of radar, and they manned the observation post. Without radar, they relied on good old-fashioned eyesight. The detachment's munitions officer, Gunner John Homus, unpacked Browning automatic rifles and Springfield O3s and gave them to civilians who volunteered for combat duty. Those volunteers were sent to VMF 211, Hamas gathered additional weapons and boxes of grenades. He spent the rest of the day handing them out throughout the island. While Marines were preparing for a potential attack, 36 Japanese bombers headed towards their location. Pilots used the clouds from a nearby storm as cover when they approached. The cloud cover and pounding surf hid the planes from the observer's sight and sound. At 1158 1st Lt. Lewis noticed the V formation as they dropped to 1,500 feet. Lookout sounded the alarm as the planes were a few hundred yards from the south shore. 2nd Lt. Robert Conderman and 1st Lt. George Graves were going over last-minute instructions when the alarm was sounded. Graves managed to reach his wildcat, but a direct hit from a Japanese bomber caused the plane to burst into flames, killing him instantly. Conderman ran to his aircraft and was strafed by an enemy plane. As he was lying on the ground, a bomb hit his aircraft, pinning him under the wreckage. Corporal Robert Page rushed towards him, but Conderman directed him to another Marine who needed help. He died from his injuries before morning. When Fred Conderman received the news about his son, he vowed he'd avenge his death. He tried enlisting into every branch of the military, but he was turned down due to his age. The Marine Corps offered him a job in the mail service, and Fred accepted on the condition that they send him to the Pacific Theater. He was promoted to captain and sent to war. While he was in Guadalcanal, his mission was to establish a post office on the ship. But when the Marines were heading to shore, Fred joined them. Although amazed, his colonel scolded him and said, quote, I told you to stay on the boat until we set up a post office. Fred replied, quote, You know why I'm here. I'm not neglecting my postal duty, sir. Unquote. He later opened a post office on Guadalcanal, but frequently joined the Marines on patrols and during other firefights. One Marine reported, quote, He more than evened the score. Unquote. In 1944, the National Father's Day Committee named him the Fighting Father of the Year. Further strafing by the Japanese killed 2nd Lieutenant Frank Holden as he ran for cover and wounded 2nd Lieutenant Webb. The lack of men required to man the guns, combined with the aggressive Japanese attack, forced Marines to double their workload. On Peacock Point, Echo Battery's 1st Lieutenant Lewis manned two of the three-inch guns while the rest of his Marines stacked sandbags to add a little more protection from Japanese fire. Within seven minutes of their attack, Japanese bombers destroyed the Pan Am facilities, set fire to a local hotel, destroyed stock rooms, fuel tanks, a radio transmitter, and multiple other buildings. Eleven civilians were killed in this short time. Marines with VMS-211 had the highest casualty rate of over 60%. Out of 55 Marines, 23 were killed and 11 were wounded. 25 of the civilians attached to the unit died as well. They also suffered a lot of damage on the supply side, and most of their tents were shot up, and nearly all supplies, including tools and spare parts, were destroyed. Both of their 25,000-gallon fuel storage tanks were destroyed as well. The Japanese damages were light. Although some of their planes were hit by anti-aircraft fire, they didn't lose a single plane. Much like Midway, the focus turned to damage control and helping the casualties after the Japanese planes left. Marine gunner Clarence McKinstry noticed that one of the bombers broke off from the rest of the group and he assumed it was taking photographs. He suggested that the battery be moved, and Lewis received orders to reposition his guns after dark. Over 100 civilians moved the guns, ammunition, and sandbags 1,500 yards northwest. Marines and some civilians set up dummy guns in their old position. As the Marines repaired and strengthened their defenses, the Japanese planned for another attack. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the attack on Midway and talk about other U.S. installations targeted in the days following Pearl Harbor. This week's audiobook is Given Up for Dead America's Heroic Stand at Wake Island by Bill Sloan. If you're looking for more information on the attack of Wake Island, this book is an excellent choice. Sloan really digs into the details of the 16-day battle for Wake Island. Since most of the fighting was done by Leathernecks, this book offers that fix for you marine history enthusiasts out there. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out Corps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, Find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.